Let me invite you to take your Bibles to, and turn to the text this morning for the reading and the preaching of God's Word. We're in 1 Thessalonians, Paul's first letter there to the church in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 6 through 10. And let's hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of entrance we had with you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead. Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. May God bless his word. Please be seated. Let's bow forward to prayer and ask the Lord to bless his word as it goes forth. Father, we thank you that we can return again and again to what you have written for us, to know that it is always and ever true, to know that it is always sufficient for us in life and godliness. We thank you that we have all that we need here before us in your word. And now we ask that your spirit would come and attend to your word as it goes forth. May it it accomplish eternal things in each of us here and spread, Lord, beyond this place to those around us in our work, in our families, Lord, in our town, and Lord, among the nations, we pray that the word would sound forth there. And so we we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us don't want people to to imitate us, at least uh, in in most or a lot of things that we do, if we're honest. We don't see ourselves as being really worthy, perhaps, of imitating. We know our imperfections. We, We know how badly we can all fail at times. But as believers, we need to know that God is calling each of us to to be worthy of imitation in how we follow Jesus. At least growing in that. The Lord isn't calling us to perfection, to be sure. But we need to know that those around us need to be able to look at us and and see Christ in us, in the way we live and act. Especially, Especially when we think of parents or fathers or spiritual fathers in the faith, we we need to be those that others can imitate. 
We, we must be those whom others can follow, at least in some very clear ways, though not in every way, to follow us in, in seeing and understanding that once-for-all delivered faith. And, and to learn how to walk in that faith in a way that makes Jesus plain and, and calls others to walk in that same manner. Paul, Paul, as he comes to the church here in Thessalonica, was seeking to be an example. He, he wanted them to imitate him. He came to show them, both in, in words and in deeds, what it looks like, what it actually looks like to follow Jesus. And Paul here, we need to know, didn't, didn't mean that his life was completely together. We, we know from places like Romans chapter 7, where Paul speaks of his own struggle with sin. That he didn't have it all together at every moment in his life. But Paul, Paul is looking for the church here in Thessalonica to follow him clearly in his integrity in life and ministry. And also then out of that, in his willingness to suffer for the gospel. Really in those two areas, clearly. Follow me in, in my integrity in the Christian life and how I seek to live. And follow me in being willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And, and as we see, they were. Paul came with great integrity. As he has mentioned this already, he, he says, you, you know uh, what kind of men, in verse 5, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He'll later go on to speak more of the way they came in, in chapter 2. But he came as an honest, faithful man of God. And... And then he was willing in that to suffer the consequences for being a faithful minister of Jesus Christ. In fact, his entire ministry was one of suffering for the sake of Christ. We, we know Paul was often jailed or beaten or mocked or stoned or shipwrecked or left hungry in order to take the gospel to the nations. But he was glad in that. He, he counted it a privilege to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ in all of that. And, and he, he says this of this church in Thessalonica that, that they received, in verse 6, the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There was a certain gladness about their suffering for Christ. And so they imitated Paul in this. You know, we all, we all need models of the faith to follow. We need to see the faith lived out in day-to-day -day life. In the grind of the week, or the pressures of persecution that come. Or just the mundane tasks of life, maybe just figuring out what's for dinner every night. Or folding the clothes, changing the diapers. Or just getting your legs out over the bed every morning and 
going to work or going to church when maybe you'd rather sleep in. We need examples of the faith to spur us on. Even more so in all of that, we need, we need examples when the faith requires us to face insults, persecutions, lies. The testimony of the, the church at Thessalonica was one that they were a delight for Paul to watch, though, in how they followed his example. We'll see that they were a church that deeply loved each other, as Paul had loved them, and, and they were just willing to suffer, as Paul had suffered also for the faith. Paul tells us that this is a church that not only followed Christ, or followed Paul, but that they then became a model for others to follow. They were a model to many. Verse 7, you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's amazing. You wonder what the other churches in Macedonia or Achaia were. And Paul says, in every place. Were saying about the church in Thessalonica. They were a topic of conversation. Have you heard about the church in Thessalonica? What they've endured for the sake of Christ. How faithful they are. How, how clearly they have proclaimed the, the word of the Lord. In the midst of those troubles. In our day, in the, in the last few years. We've heard of churches especially in Canada, if you follow the news, who have, have truly suffered for the sake of the faith there. There have been uh, pastors there in Canada, especially who were jailed for their refusing to stop holding worship services in Canada. They were thrown in jail. And, and now we see in the last uh, days these these pastors had all those charges dropped against them for that. They were willing to suffer for the sake of the, the word of the Lord, the gospel. There was a large church in California as well that was threatened by the government officials with large fines for continuing to meet when the government said they couldn't meet. And we've seen that the government lost. These churches have become an example in many ways of the faith to many. And, and they are churches who have understood that God has given a, a sphere of authority to the church. And that is for the church, not for the government. And so they have said no to the government when the government has come in to step on, as it were, the authority God has given to the church. They were willing to suffer, though, in the midst of that. We need to understand the state doesn't give the church the right to worship or the right to govern her own worship. The state has its own God-given sphere of authority, but we know it's not absolute. 
It can't violate the sphere of the church or the family. The, the state, again, can't tell the church when or how to worship. Just as it can't tell the family how, how many children to have. Right? God has given an authority to the family there, not to the state. The state can't come in and tell you how to educate. They can't tell you whether you need to go to public school or private school or home school. That's a sphere of authority to the family that's there. The church at Thessalonica, though, in all of these things, as they stood for the gospel, was a, a model, a clear, bold model of the faith. So much so that Paul says the word of the Lord has, verse 8, sounded forth from you. Sounded forth. What a great message of a healthy church. That the word of the Lord sounds forth. That, that when people think of that church, they think of the word of the Lord. Their message was God's word. It wasn't... It wasn't that people would think of their famous church services or even their infamous church services. People weren't talking about the church in Thessalonica because they had a great music ministry. Though maybe they did. Or, or that they had the world's largest Sunday school. Or that they had certain celebrities in their church, or maybe they had a human Christmas tree, you know, their choir. It's not what people were talking about in Thessalonica. Or even in some, some churches in our day, there are large onstage productions with Disney themes and hip-hop songs. One of the most notable large churches in, in the country, you, I'm sure most of you know of this church, they just did a series of messages on Disney stories with themes like Toy Story, where the pastor, among other things, came out dressed up as Woody from Toy Story. The church in Thessalonica was just known for the simple word of the Lord. A healthy church is seeking to make the word famous, and in that, the Lord famous. No one was talking about other things about this church in that sense. This is how Jesus is made famous in the life of the church. By a sounding forth of the word of the Lord. Nothing complicated. A sounding forth that is clear and bold in its declaration of the very words of God to the listening world. And, and Paul here is extremely glad as he, he hears of all these things, as Timothy has come back with this report to him, he is extremely glad. And he, he says, so that we have no need, verse 8, we have no need to say anything to you. 
Paul knows they got it. They got it. So clearly and plainly, if you're a teacher or a parent, you, you know that what it feels like when your student or your child gets it. Whatever it is, it just clicks. The light goes on. The student sees the way to multiply or divide or to do the algebra problem, and it clicks. It's there. You don't need to say anything more, right? Or, or maybe when your child finally masters riding a bike, and off they go. There, there it is. There's a time of wobbling around, a few falls, a few tears, maybe skin knees, but all of a sudden, there they go. This church in Thessalonica is off on its own, in a way. It's the proclamation of the world. And how thrilling and glorious for the Apostle Paul to, to see the Lord blessing his church in this way. This is also a clear mark of a growing church, a sound church. Paul Verse 8, the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything about you. A church is, is known by its message and by its living out of its faith, right? Always look to the teaching of a church. What's it teaching? Is it sound? Is it sending forth the word? And, and, and is there this sort of matching of it in the lives of the people. A church that's rooted and grounded in the word of God. Not in, not in some general sense in the word, right? But rather in, in, in sort of this patient unfolding of the word and, and then a bold proclaiming of that same word. There's a, a kind of preaching that's out there at times that I would call devotional preaching. Devotional preaching. It, it's a kind of preaching that, that just skims over a text in order to talk about perhaps a, a felt need uh, or some general topic that's out there. Now, there are certain devotionals that can be helpful. You know, we, we have various devotionals we might use. Table Talk's a good one if you don't have one by Ligonier Ministries, but, but you don't want your preaching to be devotional in that sense, right? That is, you don't want your preaching to be light and skimming or to feel like maybe it's just more of a motivational talk with a, a little bit of Jesus tucked in there. That's a lot of preaching today, stories that skim the text with a little bit of Jesus perhaps thrown in, thrown in. But the church in Thessalonica seemed to be a church from which the word of the Lord sounded forth. They were imitating Paul in this sense. Paul sounded forth the word everywhere he went. Paul's, Paul's preaching was bold and clear and, and precise. It wasn't general. It wasn't, in that sense, devotional. You knew when the church, you knew that when the church there proclaimed the word, you were indeed hearing, 
hearing the very voice of the Lord. And Paul goes on to speak about their conversion. He speaks of how the report has gone out, not only of verse 8, how they have sounded forth the word. Their faith has gone forth. And the report about them is the entrance they received from Paul, or that, that Paul received from them, how they responded to the, to the word preached, and then what that did, it turned them from God, or to God from idols. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. I find that conversion of the saints here in Thessalonica particularly amazing. That is, how short of a time it seemed to take. Paul, as we know, was there about three weeks. He, we know he preached on three Sabbaths, we're told, in the book of Acts. We don't really know how many other opportunities Paul had to preach in Thessalonica. We know he, he also spent time there working. He was a tent maker, and so he was working in Thessalonica as well. So he was preaching there and also seemed to be laboring maybe in his 9-to-5 job at the same time. And yet God moved. Three weeks, three Sabbaths, maybe a few other, other times, we don't know. And, and it didn't take months it didn't take years of apologetics and, and mission strategies. But the gospel flooded into Thessalonica just like the dam had been broken. God moved there, and when God had decided to move, things happened. Idols were rejected. And Christ was worshipped. There was this pulling down of strongholds that came with the message of the cross. Just like the walls of Jericho fell as, as the people of Israel marched around and really worshipped. That's all they did. They blew their trumpets. It was a, really just an act of worship. They didn't have battering, ram, battering rams. They didn't have these great engines of war. But the walls fell with the worship of God's people. And, and what we see here in Thessalonica is that centuries, I mean, this is centuries of idol worship, fall to the preaching of the gospel. You know that one of the greatest acts of worship for you as a believer, for as, a, as a church, is the proclamation of the cross. When you proclaim Jesus, that's a great act of worship. When you proclaim him crucified, when you speak of the gospel to your friends, that's an act of worship. That's how we ought to understand the message of the cross. And, and also to realize the power that is inherent in it, that if God should choose to act at any moment, there will be conversions. Idols will be rejected. We ought to pray for that, too, as we hear the gospel preached, as we share the gospel with those around us. And we ought to expect Christ to move. 
Now, God may not always move in that way. We know that in, in the scriptures. But our default mode, I think, beloved, ought to be that not, not that conversions can only happen through years and years of painstaking, witnessing, micro-witnessing, macro-witnessing. That is this little by little sharing of something about Jesus. We ought to be doing that. But our default mode ought to be, God may move in any moment on his word and all that he would. Now God does at times take years to work in the lives of some men and women and and we ought to never give up hope. But all that we might go out with that expectation that if God decides to move, idols will fall. Strongholds will crumble in the face of the gospel. And so, let me suggest our default mode should not be, oh, this will take years. If that person ever comes to Christ. But rather, oh God, will you not move even this day? Even this day in the preaching of the gospel. Or the sharing of the gospel. Believing that God has the power to raise the dead on any given day, in any given moment. We ought to expect the moving of the Lord. That seemed to be the the faith here that we see in the lives of the people of Thessalonica. They saw God moved in their lives that way. And, And the Lord moved them from idols to serve the living and true God. What a great exchange. What a great exchange. They don't turn from one form of religion to another. This isn't just sort of a lateral move that they make from from being a a Muslim to, well, I'll be a Hindu or a Buddhist or even an atheist. An atheist where you're still religious. You're just your own God, right? The atheist... The atheist just worships the, the person in the mirror. And, and so this is a moving of, of someone who is bowing before images of wood and stone or the images in the mirror. And now they're bowing before the living and true God. There's no greater shift in a person's heart or mind than this. You might shift from one political party to another, even one religion to another. Favorite food to the next, one philosophy to another, but, but there's no greater shift, change, than moving from serving idols to serving the living and true God. And then Paul speaks of their great expectation in all of this, is they're waiting for Jesus to come back. They're waiting from the Son, God's Son from heaven. In many ways, you could say this is a, a great mark as well of a healthy church. Of all the things Paul's spoken of here of Thessalonica, they're waiting for Jesus. 
It's a church here in Thessalonica that has been clearly called by God, as Paul says. They have the evidences in their lives of a working faith. Their faith has gone to work. They have a, a, a love that labors for one another. They have a, a steadfast hope in persecutions. They're proclaiming the gospel loud and clear and boldly. They're unafraid of persecutions. And here they're waiting for Jesus to come back. This is a church that knows Jesus is coming. It knows it. It knows that Christ has been raised up from the dead. He knows that he's ascended into heaven only to return someday. It's a waiting church, an anticipating church, longing for our Redeemer, longing for the one who has loved us, who has saved us by his blood, and is coming back for each of us and all of us. Each of us and all of us. You know, as a believer, I'm not, not, not just waiting to go to be with Jesus. Jesus and me. I am. But the believer is one who is longing for all of us together to be with Jesus. That's the church. It's, it's sort of like a family reunion where you're not just going looking to go back to the house, perhaps, where you grew up by yourself and be there by yourself, right? You're going to be there with your family. That's, that's what we're waiting for. We want to be together as one with Christ in the new heaven and the new earth. Waiting for his son from heaven. And Paul, Paul sort of throws this in, in in verse 10. He'll deal more with this in his second letter. But he says, you're waiting for Jesus, the living one, raised from the dead, who has rescued us from the wrath to come. Paul's reminding them here that there is a wrath that God has saved us out of. You know, Paul is one, as you read through his letters, who never apologizes in any place for speaking about the wrath of God. And we ought never to do that either, beloved. It's tempting. No, we ought not to be glad for that wrath and sort of be eager to see people go to hell. But we ought to never apologize for, for speaking about it or, or preaching about it for that matter. Truth is, there are a lot of pastors I know who are, frankly, they're embarrassed by the Bible's teaching on hell and the wrath of God. Many times I've heard pastors begin to speak about this topic by talking about it sort of like it's bad medicine that you just need to put a little sugar on for people to take.
But none of the New Testament writers or Jesus ever began with an apology for hell. It, it was never sort of, I'm sorry, I have to tell you this. We just need to sort of let that sink in. In fact, it would be, and it is, greatly insulting, I think, to God to apologize for hell. Think about it. Would a husband ever apologize for defending with force the honor of his wife? No. He would never say, I'm sorry. Would he say, I really feel bad about punching you in the nose for mocking or insulting my wife? No. How much more, though, too, we, we ought to be unashamed to speak of God's wrath that comes on those who would mock him, defy him. No, you see, the doctrine of hell or the wrath of God here is one that, that chiefly honors the holiness of God. It honors the holiness of our God. And, and those who would slight and dishonor the holiness of God justly deserve his wrath. So again, hell is not a doctrine we find, in a sense, delightful, but it's one that we find good and just and right. And, and we do so because in the end it's a vindication of the holiness of our God. It, it causes us to see that God is pure and all sin is this, this infinite assault on the character of our God. That all sin mocks him. And God is right to bring about his wrath. And so Paul reminds again the Thessalonians of this and, and that they are those who clearly know that Jesus has rescued them out of that. Coming wrath. Remember, Jesus is coming. And his coming, beloved, is that final rescue from the wrath to come. A just wrath, to be sure, but one that we have been snatched out of by our union with Christ, by faith. God has placed you, beloved, in Christ, by faith. And you are freed from the wrath to come. It cannot find you. It's a wrath that is real and impending. And men, men ought to view that, that wrath like we would view the rising of the sun tomorrow morning. No one doubts the sun will rise tomorrow. No one's going to place a bet against that. No one lives believing the sun will not rise, and so men ought to also live with the same sense of the coming wrath of God. But also, on the other hand, as a believer, just as the sun will rise tomorrow, even more so, you will not see the wrath of God as a believer. What we see here in the church at Thessalonica, I think, is what God is 
setting forth for every church of Jesus Christ to be. That's what he desires for us to look like, to be like, to follow their example in these things. Now, we don't need the great apostle to, uh, to show up or even write us a personal letter, as it were, as we've seen, uh, for this to happen. We just need the Lord to move upon his word and through that to shape and to mold us into a people who imitate the church in Thessalonica. My prayer, too, as we go through this letter is that one day, one day when we do see uh, the saints in glory who were a part of the church at Thessalonica, because we will, they, they might look at us and say, you look familiar. You look familiar. Maybe so. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for what you did in their midst. We thank you for the way that, that their faith sounded forth. Their proclamation of the word went out to all the known world, it seems, at that time. And Lord, we, we know that you're able to move in any place at any moment in the same way and same manner. And we ask, Lord, all oh, that you would do it in our day. You would do it here, Lord. You would send forth your word boldly and clearly. And Lord, that, that this church might be known for that. That as people think of Berean, they would think of the word of the Lord sounding forth. And, and that the faith of the people here Lord, fitting that proclamation. And so, Lord, help us in that. Bless us in it, Lord. We need you, Lord, to, uh, to move us in this way and help. So we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite you to uh, stand. As Aaron would lead us as we close, we sing number 334, Breathe on Me, Breath of God.